Some years ago, a priest told me about a particularly interesting and challenging pastoral problem he dealt with. It seems that a a young man, some 20 years old, had asked for help. Now that in itself, uh, to put it mildly, is not particularly interesting because people come to the priest to ask them for help all the time. We might think it was particularly interesting because the problem that the young man was unsuccessfully dealing with was demonic possession. And the priest that he was talking to was an exorcist, the one who was telling me the story. But even that is not that interesting. We've just heard a story uh, today about that. Devils do possess people, and the gospel speaks of that. What made this particular case interesting was the challenge that had to be overcome before this young man could be delivered, the particular condition that had to be met before the demons would depart. Now, in order to better appreciate this, I want to back up a little bit and make sure that we have a basic understanding of demonic activity and exorcism. We're not going to get into all the gory details. We're just going to have a really, really basic overview, okay? So one way to understand demonic activity is in terms of a spectrum. So you have a spectrum ranging from the one hand where you have ordinary temptation all the way to full-blown possession. Ordinary temptation that we all have to suffer when you go all the way over to the extreme over here, which would be full-blown possession. We'll consider some young man who, for whatever reason, and we'll get into some of those reasons in a moment, let's consider a young man that's over-experiencing extraordinary activities of the devil, demonic attacks. It could be, you know, over here on the full-blown side of the uh, possession side of the spectrum. So it could be demonic oppression, it could be obsession, or it could be possession. All right, what's the difference? So you want to picture a fortress that's under attack. Demonic oppression is similar to, to a, a fortress which is surrounded, and it's under siege. So the enemy is encamped outside the walls. He's surrounded the place, but he's unable to break in, so he's wreaking havoc on whatever he can outside the walls. Okay, Everything's going wrong in a man's life. Things are a complete disaster. It's as if he's under a curse which, in fact, is a, is a real possibility. Don't laugh. Um, if someone knows the right people, he can certainly go get someone to terrorize, beat somebody up, or even kill them if they know the right people, or maybe I should say the wrong people. And there are certainly individuals that conspire with demons to, to have the same kind of effects in terrorizing people. Anyway, an example of demonic oppression that everybody's familiar with is the case of Holy Job. We read in the book of Job. We can see that in the Old Testament. So that's demonic oppression. The man is surrounded, and he's under siege, but the demons are not able to break in. So that'd be on the extraordinary scale. That's the least uh, powerful extraordinary. The next, uh, we'd move from there to demonic oppression. And we're getting closer to the full-blown possession end of the activity of the spectrum. Suppose that the fortress is under attack, but now there's a breach in one of the walls. And the enemy is able to make brief sallies through that breach. He's able to penetrate and attack inside to some degree, but he's still unable to fully seize the fort. That is comparable to demonic uh, obsession. All of a sudden, this man experiences overwhelming and hideous thoughts over which he has no control at all. Terrible blasphemies, overpowering lust, suicidal ideation, and so forth. It's really important to note that there's a basic difference between these type of intrusive thoughts and those experienced by people who suffer from conditions like obsessive-compulsive disorder. 
And the difference is at the level of causality. The difference is, in the first case, demonic obsession, the intrusive thoughts are caused by demons. In the second place, like conditions like OCD, the intrusive thoughts are the result of psychological and or biological factors. So although the person might not be able to tell the difference, there's a very basic difference. You know, the cause is, is not even remotely the same. So that's demonic obsession. Full-blown possession. In this case, the enemy has successfully breached the fences, he's inside the walls, and he has possession of the fort. Found an open door, came rushing into the fortress, and seized it. That's comparable to demonic possession, that sort of situation. Please note that in possession, the demons have gained a stronghold within the body and even control of the body to some degree. They only have access to the material aspects of a man. The intellect and the will of the man have not been seized. They cannot be seized. Man retains his free will. Mortal sin, which is a free act, unites a man's will with that of the demon, not possession. Possession does not directly affect the will. Suppose a man got possessed while he's engaging in certain sinful behaviors, like he's watching porn videos online, good way to get possessed, using drugs, getting in certain types of music, types of heavy metal music, certain lifestyles. He's playing with a Ouija board. If he makes a good confession, he's back in the state of grace. But don't think for even a second that being back in the state of grace, which is soul, means the devils are suddenly going to leave. Oh, excuse me. You know, we're sorry. We must have the wrong person. Sorry for the trouble. We're out of here. doesn't work like that. Would that it were that easy. This guy has real problems now, real problems. Now, before we go any farther, just to put everybody here at peace, there's nothing to worry about if you live a good Catholic life. Go to confession frequently. Make fervent communions. Say your prayers, especially your Holy Rosary. Wear your scapular and stay in the state of grace. It's pretty basic. There's no real secrets to this. Live a good Catholic life and stay in the state of grace. He's our Savior. What is he saving us from? From the devil. It's pretty basic. If we're living a good Catholic life, we're going to be all right, okay? There's one important precaution we might note. Because we live in such strange times, it's important to get the absolute habit of saying grace before you eat and adopt the little Benedictine habit of making a little sign of the cross over things before you drink them, okay? Especially when you're out and about. At home, this is... I mean, it's important to say grace because we're thanking God, but it's not a big deal at home for the reasons we're going to say. But when you're out and about, we're surrounded by neo-pagans. We're immersed in a neo-pagan culture. And if anyone tried to put a spell or curse on you by slipping something in your food or drink, and there are people that do this sort of thing, if anyone tried to put a spell or curse on you by slipping something into your food or drink, it's called a malefice, they call it. There's other things, a fortuna which is like the demonic equivalent of a sacrament, sort of an anti-sacrament produced by sorcery. If you do it, but you pray or do a little sign of the cross, you're fine. If there's anything in there, it's going to be totally disarmed by the power of the cross. Our Lord's power is infinitely more powerful than these clowns, okay? It's totally disarmed. You know, you've just just blown it all up, okay? Anything would be totally uh, disarmed. Now, this isn't a joke. The number one reason that exorcists in Italy deal with possessed people is because someone has put a spell or a curse on them. The number one reason, okay? Don't think that that only pertains to Italy. Has anybody here ever been to New Orleans? The voodoo shops. Huh? 
Well, you don't have to travel that far. Go right down the boulevard here to the grocery store. Now, even in a grocery store right here, not a mile away, there's a whole section for amateurs. It's got Santa Morte candles. It's got a bunch of other uh, sprays and all this kind of stuff there. Right in the grocery store. In the grocery store for people to get a hold. That's just for the amateurs. We're not talking, you know, going to some voodoo shop or somebody that does this professionally. Santa Morte. How many people burn a candle to him? It's unbelievable. Okay? This stuff is everywhere. So word to the wise, get in the habit a blessing your food and drink every time, no exceptions, nothing to worry about. You're always protected. I was in a, a gathering of some priests once, and there's a priest from Nigeria, and I just I do it without thinking. I mean, almost. It's just so automatic. And the priest from Nigeria says, you have to do that here in this country, too? He knew what was going on. I said, oh, yeah, Father, because <laughs> he knew what was going on right away because he's like, hey, wait a minute, what's this priest doing? You know, because he's like, hey, wait a minute. Okay, so back to the story. We, we have a possessed man. Suppose he actually gets in touch with an exorcist. In every diocese has an exorcist. Every diocese in the world. The exorcist has jurisdiction, legal power, which comes from Christ himself over every single demon in the diocese. The chief exorcist in every diocese is super easy to find. It's the bishop. That's who's the exorcist. Not an auxiliary bishop. Not a retired bishop. It's the bishop of the diocese. Often you hear him called the local ordinary. If someone has a credible case of demonic possession and he presents himself to the bishop, either the bishop himself has to undertake the blessings himself or he has to delegate that to another priest to do the exorcisms. Okay, you heard that in the plural. That's correct. Exorcisms, because generally speaking, unless the exorcist is a saint or he's dealing like with the super wimp of a devil of all time, it takes many blessings, sometimes over the course of years, to deliver a possessed man. If someone with a credible case of demonic possession presents himself to the bishop, either the bishop himself has to undertake the exorcisms or he must delegate a priest to do the exorcism himself. In other words, he gives that priest jurisdiction over that demon or he could give him jurisdiction over all the demons because the bishop has jurisdiction over every demon in his diocese. This is the kind of power they have, and that's a power from Christ. It's a legal power. So, to delegate means a bishop gives that priest delegation or jurisdiction over this particular case, and the devil's involved with it, or he could give him a general delegation, made him a titular exorcist, it's called, so anybody that presents himself in the diocese he can take care of. The bishop is bound to do this under the pain of mortal sin, which means we better start praying for our bishops. At the recent meeting in Baltimore, the bishops covered this topic, and hopefully there will be many good fruits as a result of that, and this pastoral reality will be taken much more seriously than it has been. We need to pray for our bishops. Okay, so let's suppose that the possessed man is sent by his bishop to a priest who's delegated to do the exorcism. Generally speaking, during the course of the blessings, because he has jurisdiction, the priest is able to command the devils to tell him a number of things that he needs to know. Among other things, he'll tell the devils to tell him his name because he'll be ordered out by name. And they do have names. They're persons. They're not friendly persons, but they have names. You know the names of a lot of them. You shouldn't say them, but you'd know them. They're not just in Scripture. The, the, the names of the different pagan gods and goddesses are devils. Okay? 
He will command them to tell what their mission was. What they were, what were they sent to do? And he'll command them to tell what the open door was. How exactly did they enter this man? And the priest will also be encouraging the suffering man to practice the faith, to live a really serious life of prayer and penance. And then over time, and by the grace of God, the blessings will have their effect, and hopefully the devils will be so weakened they finally leave and he'll be delivered. All right, that's all by way of background. What we started by saying that 20-some-year-old young man had asked an exorcist for help, and this case was particularly interesting because the challenge it had to be overcome before this young man could be delivered because of the particular condition that had to be met before the demons would depart. Here's the condition. During those exorcisms, the demons would laugh and taunt the priest, stating that they weren't going to leave and that they didn't have to leave until the suffering man forgave his parents. Okay, so he had to forgive his parents. So why is that interesting? What's so challenging about that? Well, here's the problem. This young man had grown up in a family of Satanists. See, since infancy, he'd been subjected to torture, physical, emotional, other kinds of torture, unspeakable kinds of torture. And all this at the hands of his father and of his mother. Since infancy, his whole life, till he left home, he'd been tortured by his parents. And the devils weren't going to leave. They didn't have to leave until he forgave them. Now there's a real problem. I told the priest, boy, Padre, wounds like that penetrate right into the core of someone's being. It's impossible for someone that wounded to forgive in a situation like that. That's impossible, naturally speaking. And he said, you're right. You are right, but there is a way to do this. In fact, it took about a year, but that young man was able to totally forgive his parents and then was successfully delivered. Of course, I want to know how that young man who had been subject to physical, emotional, and other types of torture, all these unspeakable things, I want to know just how could that young man who had been tortured since infancy get to the point where his wounds were so healed that he could possibly forgive his parents? And the priest explained it to me. It's absolutely correct, he said, that the young man could not forgive his parents. So that's where we had to start. So here's what I had him do. I told him he had to start saying prayers along these lines. Lord Jesus, I can't forgive my parents. I can't. I hate them. I can't forgive them, so you have to forgive them for me. You forgive them for me. I'm turning that all over to you. I'm turning all over, those, over all those terrible memories all that pain, all the torture to you. Lord Jesus, I'm inviting you into those events, each and every one of them, the ones I remember, the ones I can't remember, all that pain, all those events. I know you were present, and now I'm asking you to come into those events to heal me and to forgive my parents for me. Vex just told me, that our Lord is so gentle that he generally doesn't go where he isn't asked. 
But he said that over time, as the young man prayed those prayers, our Lord began to move to this young man's life and rearranged the interior furniture, as it were, of his soul, his emotions, his imagination, his memory. The Lord began to heal those memories. They don't go away. But the pain and the terror associated with it gets healed. The Lord began to heal his memories and soothe the pain. And over time, the anger, the hatred, the pain began to dissipate until he found himself actually able to forgive his parents. Okay, Father, but why did you just spend a whole sermon talking about a possessed young man that's been tortured all his life? Yes, the gospel today is about possession. But what's your point? It's not exactly like the pews are full of people that are possessed and grew up in families of Satanists. It's true. On the one hand, we want to praise God and all his works, and the healing that this young man experienced is certainly a greater healing than the restoring of a lost limb because it's a moral miracle. So we want to praise God for that. And it is true that the pews are not full of possessed people who grew up in families of Satanists. But the pews are full in every church, every Catholic church, of people who are packing around a lot of pain from other kinds of wounds. In the pews, you might find someone who had terrible things happen to him, maybe at the hands of a family member, a teacher, a stranger, a priest. You might find some post-abortal women. You might find people whose parents were alcoholics or drug addicts. You might find some wounded by divorce or an abusive marriage might find some whose mother told them, I should have aborted you. You might find some who grew up with no father in the home, or remember never even knew their dad. You might find some that are just struggling with disordered attractions. You might find some are suffering from deep self-inflicted wounds as a result of behavior before their conversion from spending time on the wrong kind of websites. There's a lot of pain, an awful lot of pain in the pews at every Catholic church. And all the, although the, it's true the pews are not full of possessed people, so as we've seen, everyone has to suffer the ordinary attacks of the devils. And since we have to understand the ordinary attacks of the devils, it's important to remember that devils have access to our memory and our imagination. They can see those wounds, and they want to keep them open, fresh, and hurting. So occasionally, they reach in and touch them just to stir up the pain and all those memories. Give that person a miserable day. So that's the main reason for telling this story, because it's so important for us each to realize, especially those who are in pain, it's really important to realize that the same healing power still flows out from our Lord. It's the same Lord. That same healing power still flows out from him as it flowed out when he was visibly present in gospel times. Huh? When that woman with the bloody issue reached out and touched the hem of his garment and the power flowed out from Christ into her and healed her, that same power still flows out from our Lord. It's the same Lord. As St. Paul says in Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Just as that woman of gospel times reached out and touched him and was healed, so also we can reach out and touch him and be healed. And we reach out and touch him 
by our faith and our prayers. That's how we have contact with our Lord. We can reach out with that same kind of prayer with something along these lines. Lord Jesus, I can't forgive my parents, or I can't forgive myself, or I have these disordered desires. I can't handle this. So you have to take charge of it for me. You forgive them for me, or you heal my self-hatred, or you reorder my disordered desires. I'm turning all that over to you. I'm turning over all those terrible memories, imaginations, all the pain. I'm turning it over to you. Lord Jesus, I've already confessed my sins, and I'm turning to you and begging you to heal me. I'm inviting you into those events, each and every one of them, all of them, the ones I remember, the ones I don't remember, all that pain and all those events. I know that you are present, and now I'm asking you to come into all those events to heal me, to forgive my parents for me, or to forgive me for me, or to reorder my desires for me. And over time, as we pray, our Lord will begin to move through our life and rearrange the interior furniture of our soul, heal the memories, soothe the pain. Remember that He's so gentle that He generally doesn't go where He isn't asked. So if we really want to be healed, we want to make sure that we don't keep Him closed out of anywhere. It's especially important to pray like this after we received Holy Communion. Note that the Church actually makes the priest say a prayer for healing every time he says Mass, just before he gives himself Holy Communion. If you follow Mass in your hand missal, you'll notice that the third prayer before the priest's communion, it's called the Percepcio. You'll notice the third prayer has a prayer specifically for this end. I'll read a translation. Quote, Through the, thy goodness may it, they're referring to, the, it, or it refers back earlier where it's thy body, O Lord Jesus Christ. Through thy goodness may thy body, Lord Jesus Christ, be unto me a safeguard and a healing remedy, both of soul and body. Close quote. May thy body, O Lord Jesus Christ, be unto me a healing remedy, both of soul and body. And the church places that in the prayer for the priest to pray every time he goes to communion. So we can reach out with faith and touch our Lord with prayer, especially after receiving Holy Communion. And there's one more practice used by some exorcists, which is very helpful, and it's called making a spiritual contract. So how does that work? Well, first we make a spiritual communion. In case someone here doesn't know what that means, it means since we can't receive our Lord in Holy Communion, sacramentally, instead we invite him to come into our soul spiritually. And he will. We've invited him in. He'll come. The invitation suffices, but if you prefer their formal prayers, their spiritual communion prayers, you can find them in most hand missiles. Okay, so first we make a spiritual communion, and then we say exactly the same prayer as if we just received Holy Communion. Lord Jesus, I can't forgive my parents, or I can't forgive myself, or I can't control my disordered desires. I can't handle this. So you have to do it for me. You forgive them for me, or you heal my self-hatred, or you reorder my desires. I'm turning all that part of my personality over to you. I'm turning over all the terrible memories, all the pain. Lord Jesus, I've already confessed my sins, and now I'm turning to you and begging you to heal me. I'm inviting you into those events, each and every one of them, the ones I remember, the ones I don't remember, all that pain, all those events. I know that you are present, and I'm asking you now to come into those events to heal me and forgive my parents for me or forgive me for me or to reorder my desires for me. 
Then we tell our Lord that we would like to renew, here's the spiritual contract part, we would like to renew the spiritual communion every time we perform a certain action. So like when we're busy, we don't have 10 minutes. Let's say we sit here and say, I'm going to do that every time I rub my chin thoughtfully or curl my toes in my boots or something like that. And then if I'm really stressed out, we mean to renew it by every breath we take or every beat of our heart. Finally, for the spiritual communion contract, we turn to Our Lady, St. Joseph, our patron saints and our guardian angel, and we ask them to please offer up this very same prayer every time we perform that action or when we're really stressed out, every time we take a breath and or our heart beats. Okay, so there we are at work, at school, someplace where we're really too busy to stop and spend 10 minutes composing our thoughts, making a spiritual communion, praying that prayer. No sweat. We just start thoughtfully rubbing our chin. This is just for example, curling our toes, whatever. And our Lord, who certainly knows how weak we are and how at that moment we're unable to stop and talk, but that we really desire Him to come into our hearts spiritually and heal us, our Lord will come spiritually into our heart at the very same time our Lady, St. Joseph, our patron saints, and our guardian angel are offering up that prayer to Him. It's great. It's really great. And we're really stressed out. Then our heartbeat, our breath will do that. Well, what about all the people in the pews that aren't wounded? Is there anything we can do? Yeah, there is. Every one of us here can lift up our wounded friends and neighbors, those known to us, and those known only to God, we can lift them up in prayer. To bring spiritual comfort to the afflicted is a great act of charity. And not only that, it's a test of our commitment to the Catholic faith and living an authentic Catholic life. And we have that opportunity, certainly after every communion, when we pray here for those who are wounded, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. So that's what the rest of us can do. Let's close today with a prayer. Please kneel. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, Amen. O Lord, who invited all those with burdens to come to you, we come before you today and beg you to mercifully lighten the burdens of each of the wounded members of your flock present here today, to grant each one peace of soul and full healing, so that being restored to health, they may render thanks to you in your church. We ask this in your holy name, Amen. Our Lady of Sorrows, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost.